Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In 1992, Deline Hempel had just married the love of her life, moved into a new home, and started a new waitressing job. But on her way home from her second shift, the 26-year-old vanished. Her abandoned car was found parked on the side of the highway. Police scoured the area for clues and tirelessly tracked down both staff and patrons of the bar where she worked, the place she was last seen. Months later, Deline was still missing when the case took another tragic turn. You think the worst is over and, well, obviously the worst has happened, but then you gotta go through everything again. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, I share what happened to Deline Hempel and the groundbreaking investigative strategies that solved the case. This is part two of The Second Shift. Deline Hempel went missing on November 17, 1992. That Christmas was especially difficult for her husband, Troy Hempel. Yeah, I mean, every time the phone rings, yes, you're jumping. And and I had lots of people call my house who were not well. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, lots of people would call with tips saying they saw her here and there. And so you have to get those checked out. But that was was a a daily thing through with my my house. He missed his wife, and her disappearance was still very much a mystery. Always held out hope, right? Glimmer, and each uh, a glimmer of hope, but it, it, it always did fade by every passing day. It was hard not to let his imagination take over. By then, police had managed to track down more than 300 patrons who were in the bar the night Deline vanished. Corporal Doug Morrison from the RCMP Calgary Major Crimes Unit was the primary investigator assigned to the case. He said it was during those interviews that he met a woman that became integral to the case. A young lady who was a nursing student at the U of L was seated in Confetti's Bar and Grill in one of the booths in the area where Delene Hempel served, and. Uh, She became uh, my star witness, so to speak. Corporal Morrison said this young woman witnessed several interactions between Deline and a patron. After she started observing him and listening to him and listening to Deline going back to him, that she uh, very quickly realized that this guy was basically hitting on her. The witness told Corporal Morrison it was clear the man was making Deline uncomfortable. She said right off the bat, uh, he just didn't fit the mold there. And he was very uh, persistent in his conversations with her, just trying to be friendly on the second day on the job, didn't want to cause an issue where she would lose her job. That information, coupled with the doorman's account that Deline asked to be escorted to her car, prompted investigators to ask the witness for help with a composite sketch. 
Corporal Morrison said her attention to detail was remarkable. With a detailed sketch of a possible suspect, police said they needed to be strategic with their next steps. We don't really want to give that out to the public because then we're going to be just inundated with calls. Well, he looks like this guy, he looks at that guy. The next step of uh, the investigation really uh, kind of hinged on finding, uh, finding uh, Deline Hempel. You'll recall that Deline's car was found on November 17, 1992, near Cheadle, a small rural community east of Calgary. There, the search efforts continued well into spring. We didn't have any evidence to prove that it was a homicide, but as time drags on, unfortunately, in our line of business, uh, you know, you have that feeling that, um, you know, uh, obviously this isn't going to end very well. Deline's husband, Troy, refused to give up. Then, on April 9th, 1993, nearly five months after she disappeared. I was actually out searching as well with a group of people. And the uh, weird thing was, was I had, the, I've never had one since, a migraine that I just could not get rid of that day. So I actually left the search and then came home because uh, I just was not feeling well. Um, and that's when they found, somebody found a body, right? Um, and I knew, I knew that was Deline. I just, I just knew. A couple out for a walk discovered a body just a few kilometers from where Deline's car was found. Corporal Morrison has a clear recollection of the location and the disturbing scene. It was in a bush area, in a kind of an isolated area, only farmland around there. And so it ended up being about two kilometers away from, from the uh, village of uh, Cheadle. It was an abandoned railway line, and that ran uh, all the way to hook up with another railway line uh, to the uh, west of Cheadle and so on and so forth. So a couple were out walking one afternoon on, in April, and uh, fortunately they looked over and were uh, able to determine that they saw uh, a, a hand out of the ground in this yellow grave. A heavy police presence converged on the area. You know, you have to appreciate when she went missing in November of uh, 92, that the ground would have been frozen, you know, because you're, you're dealing with that time of the year around here. So digging a grave uh, is rather difficult. So uh, the person that did this had dug a grave, but it was a shallow grave. So enough to uh, cover the body, so to speak, and then a uh, number of dead, um, branches and tree limbs and so on and so forth were laid over as well to kind of cover up that area. Dental records confirmed the worst. The body found in the shallow grave was Deline Hempel. An autopsy provided the cause of death. I determined that she had been, uh, been uh, killed by uh, two shots to the back of her head. So we were able to picture it back to shortly after her, her uh, abduction from where she was parked, that she was probably murdered, probably in hours after that. So 
um, right around the time when, when the disappearance first was reported. Corporal Morrison remembers the difficult conversation that followed. Then we went out and uh, met with Troy. We phoned in advance and said we'd like to come out. By this time, it was uh, all over the news um, that a body had been discovered near, near Cheadle. And so it was all over the news. So it was just a matter of closing that, that, um, that door for, for them. Good evening, it is Delene Hempel. The long, agonizing search for the missing woman ended about an hour and a half ago when RCMP informed her family that the body found in a field east of Calgary Friday night was Delene's. Yeah, 30 years later, I'm still emotional. Um, yeah, it's always difficult, uh, you know, when you, when you bring the bad news to, uh, to people uh, about a loved one. So it, it's never easy. funeral was held for Delene Hempel on April 17, 1993, five months to the day after police believed she was killed. Her sister, Jeline Costco, delivered the eulogy. You just come to realize that even though she was only here for 26 years, she had a tremendous impact on a lot of people's lives. Delene's husband, Troy, was devastated. At that time, uh, life was over for me, to be quite honest with you. Um, I'd, I'd made up my mind that once they'd found her, that what's the reason for me to be here, right? So, yeah, uh, that, that, was, that, was, that was my plan to just end it all. I just remember uh, looking over one last time at my dogs and they just looked at me like, what are we gonna do? You can't leave us. So that's when I made the decision to, uh, no matter how hard it was, I was gonna try to live my life. Corporal Doug Morrison said, with the case now deemed a homicide, the investigation intensified. But there were some challenges. You know, we don't have any real forensic evidence. Uh, we never did locate the, uh, the, uh, the weapon. At that time, police were already pursuing another lead, one they hadn't shared with the family or the public. You'll remember the composite sketch that was created with the help of the star witness, the one who was at the bar the night Delene Hempel disappeared. Police decided not to release the sketch to the public and instead shared it internally with other officers to see if anyone recognized the suspect. One of the first to respond regularly patrolled the Trans-Canada Highway east of Calgary. That included the Cheadle, Strathmore, and surrounding areas. Without hesitation, the officer gave Corporal Morrison a name. He says, that's Steve Burns, he lives in Cheadle. He says, I charged him with uh, speeding here not too long ago. So I said, oh, isn't that interesting? He said, oh yeah, well, you know, he's been charged here. He's, he's up on some charges here 
with another young lady. He was convicted of robbery prior, and he ended up doing an extensive time, ended up doing, you know, five or six years uh, in the penitentiary, and then uh, subsequently was up on charges of uh, kidnapping and sexual assault of another female in the Strathmore area. It was a major break in the case, but it was based on a sketch. Police still needed to place Stephen Barnes at the bar the night Deline disappeared. So as an added measure, police included Barnes in a photo lineup and showed it to the star witness from the bar. And she was able to pick uh, uh, Stephen Roy Barnes out of that lineup, just like that. The suspect was put under surveillance. And not long after, Stephen Barnes became the target of a covert operation. We were able to garner two, two uh, undercover operators. One was an experienced operator from, uh, from BC, and the other operator was, uh, was a, an inexperienced, a younger uh, operator from Alberta here, from up around the Edmonton area. So we brought those two uh, individuals together here in Calgary, met with them, and met them within a, in a hotel, and uh, subsequently provided them some information of our situation or crime scene and some information of our uh, main suspect. This was a groundbreaking operation. It was one of Canada's very first Mr. Big sting operations used to target a suspected killer. Uh, by 1992, we hadn't done very many of these. Um, I want to say certainly less than 10. For myself, I think this was my third or fourth one. Uh, working on, on a file of this nature, and uh, this was one of the first ones ever done in the province of Alberta. We aren't identifying this officer for safety reasons. He's retired now, but he spent more than three decades with the RCMP, and for the majority of that time, he worked undercover. The vast majority of my career, I uh, spent uh, working uh, drug work, uh, homicide work, and uh, undercover duties. I was in uniform. Uh, in various communities through uh, BC and Alberta. In this case, his target was the primary suspect in the homicide of Deline Hempel, Stephen Barnes. So physically, um, he was clean-shaven. Stephen Barnes was clean-shaven. He had glasses. I recall he, I don't know why I recall this, but uh, he did tell me the prescription on his glasses were quite weak, uh, but he wore glasses all the time. Uh, short hair, neat and tidy. Uh, he was about... <laughs> Five foot nine or 10, uh, 175, I would say. Pretty muscular guy, he's kind of built like a, you know, like a, like a very lean, sinewy build to him. Um, he told me that he was taking uh, anabolic steroids and he took me into his kitchen to show me, uh, I think it was liquid testosterone he had. So presumably he was using steroids for a time. Uh, I was also told that Stephen Baird's had a long uh, record uh, history of robbery and that he had been charged previously was sexually assaulting a woman using a firearm, but he was not convicted of it because she refused to testify and relocated to another part of the country. So he basically got away with it. The officers planted themselves into Barron's life in a very strategic and unsuspecting way. Myself and my partner, first uh, we had a, a rundown truck. Uh, we were gonna be working at a local farm, uh, building, um, installing fence posts in, in rural southern Alberta. 
he had already been, he meaning Stephen Behrens, had been a, a part of that same work team, but he was no longer with that crew. We ended up meeting Stephen Behrens right at his house when our truck broke down in front of his house. We went knocked on his door to seek assistance. Some of the work crew was actually in his house socializing at the time. So by virtue of having credibility with them, we had credibility with him. Uh, that quickly turned to him showing us his truck he had for sale, knowing that ours was not running very well, that we might have a desire to buy his truck. And then our cover story evolved from there. It didn't take long for Barons to join their fictitious criminal organization. You know, as we're, he and I are getting to know one another, um, and my partner, he becomes quite comfortable with us, uh, even just showing up at his house quite frequently, which was rather unique for, for anybody, really, in terms of uh, my experience dealing with criminals. But uh, he felt very comfortable with that, to the point that uh, invariably it would happen where you know, we'd see just a woman walking by the house or we'd be out in a bar or we'd be driving in a vehicle. And he would often just talk under his breath what he would like to do to that woman. And it's very graphic, very, uh, very um, horrific um, comments nonstop. So we quickly realized that, you know, this guy, well, not giving me any credit, but he's the real deal. This guy is as bad as it gets. When I first met him, he very quickly had a, a will, desire, and aptitude to get involved in, uh, right off the top, in terms of uh, smuggling what he thought was counterfeit cigarettes, and uh, talked nonstop about his will to uh, get involved with firearms uh, smuggling, and uh, and very, very quickly even said that he was, will he was willing and capable of anything. Police came up with a number of undercover scenarios involving drug trafficking. As each ruse unfolded, there were a series of admissions made by Barons. I need to warn you, while I won't go into graphic detail about what happened, the admissions that were made are extremely disturbing. Now, this would be about I would say two to three weeks after we first met. And uh, as we're leaving the, 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 the drug deal, it uh, goes well and he's quite, he's quite pumped about it. He's quite excited that it went so well. And uh, I start to talk a little bit about, because he keeps bringing on about guns and how, you know what, if you need me for anything bigger, I'm, I'm totally comfortable whacking people, whacking being one of his favorite vernaculars for killing people. And I see, you know, you keep saying that all the time. I said, uh, you know, I hear people tell me that often, but when it comes time to actually do it, they could freeze up. He said, no, he won't freeze up because he knows, he knows he won't freeze up because he's done it before. And I basically asked what, a guy and a girl? He said, both. He said, do you remember that girl I told you about that was found not far from my place? I said, yeah. He said, well, then he came around and said, yeah, that was me, I killed her. Not long after that, the officer took a newspaper along with him as a prop. They listed a number of women who were, who were murdered recently in, in Alberta. I want to say that the article was suggesting that maybe Nickel was going to be investigated for that. And Delene Hempel's name was in that list. And so I was reading the paper that morning. I thought, this might be of some benefit. Later that day, he used the article as a way to stimulate a very specific conversation. 
So I pulled out the article and I said, uh, you know, I'm really having a hard time believing you're telling me the truth because you look at this, it looks like the police are looking at this other guy for the murder. And so he read the article and he was, I was watching him and he was extremely intense read this article. He dialed right in and then he got wildly excited and he pointed at the paper. He said, no, and he yelled at me. He said, Deleen Hempel, 26. He said, that was me. That was basically, that was my murder. He didn't do it. I did. I'm telling you the truth. I wouldn't lie about that. And so, um, yeah, with the holdback information and uh, how defiant he was with respect to my challenge there, there was no doubt in my mind that, um, that we had the right guy. Following that, about a week later is when we, we attempted the Mr. Big scenario. So we had another officer come in and play the role of, uh, of Mr. Big. The officer said in this final scenario, when Barons finally met Mr. Big, they were planning a large drug deal. But in efforts to, um, to insulate him, making sure that we weren't bringing heat on our organization, that he, if he had outstanding physical evidence that we could help dispose of that, uh, he should want to uh, help us help him. Very hot day. Um, but he had me drive, he and I, to his dad's farm, and then he pulled out two bikes. We got on two bicycles and rode down uh, about a kilometer and a half on uh, gravel road, put the bikes down, and then we walked into the area where uh, Dillian Hempel's remains were found. The undercover officer recalled this day like it was yesterday. Every expression made or word uttered by Barons forever etched in his brain. I'd never been there before. Uh, and as we walked up, I didn't know what to expect. And there was a little memorial in the dirt there. Um, he, he was absolutely riveted with shock. It was almost like he was in kind of a state of hypnosis or something because I was even trying to get an answer out of him. Are you okay? He's like, I haven't been back here since I did this. And he said, that must be a memorial the family put there. What do you think? I said, yeah, yeah, it probably is. I said, but you know what? We got business to attend to. So let's not get freaked out by that. Let's move on here. So he found the hole that he started to dig, that he, that he failed at, pointed that out to me. But he couldn't quite remember, based on landmarkings that he had from the wintertime, now that everything's overgrown in the summer, he couldn't quite remember where the hole where the clothes were. And we dug most of the uh, next couple of hours trying to find the right location. We never did. We never did recover her, her uh, effects. The undercover officer said Barron seemed irritated. He was absolutely m motivated to find that spot. He was getting really, really frustrated. He said, like, everything's overgrown now. I don't really recognize a whole lot. I don't see anything obvious. Um, you know, the grass is high now. and. Um, he, uh, I recall saying that it was an extremely hot day. I was really uncomfortable, but I was going to I was going to stay there till till long after he left if I if I had to to try and find her clothing. But um, he he actually had like a softball size of mosquitoes just swarming around the back of his neck, hammering him the whole time we were out there, and even that didn't deter him from trying. Just soaking wet with sweat, digging, 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 and. He just wouldn't let it go until finally, just like, you know what, I, I'm at a loss. I can, I just don't know where to look anymore. There's an interesting point after that, I shared with him some experiences, obviously fictitious experiences. I had depositing people's clothing, burning them and, you know, throw them in the duffel bag in the ocean, that kind of thing. And 
He said, yeah, I should have done that or I should have done that. He never really came up with any other alternative to the clothing except that, yeah, I, I thought I was doing, doing the wise thing by burying them, but I, I, I guess if I can't find them, it's a good thing the police won't be able to. Despite the fact they didn't find the evidence they were searching for that day, this marked the final undercover scenario. Police said, given the earlier confessions made by Barnes, they felt they had enough. As we drove back into Calgary and he and I exited my vehicle, uh, we were we were both arrested. Well, I was arrested as a ruse with him. And then he went off to, uh, he went off to jail, went off to, in their custody. Next time I saw him was in the court case. In August of 1993, nearly nine months after Delene Hempel vanished, Stephen Barnes was charged with first-degree murder. Corporal Doug Morrison said officers did an exhaustive search of Barnes' home in Cheadle. They also returned to the area where Delene was buried, just a few kilometers away. We had uh, the University of Calgary uh, assisted us. I went there a number of times and we brought, uh, they had uh, invented our ground penetrating radar so it would tell us anomalies in the ground. So we, we did that for, gosh, a day, day and a half, and weren't able to come up with any reasonable, you know, area to dig. No further evidence was found. Corporal Morrison told me he interviewed Barons following his arrest. He was shocked to learn his new friends were actually police officers. He was uh, somewhat surprised that our operators were actually, uh, you know, policemen. And uh, yeah, uh, surprised the amount of evidence we did have. And uh, subsequently uh, never told us the whole real story, but uh, certainly admitted his, uh, his involvement. Barons pleaded not guilty and following a preliminary inquiry, was ordered to stand trial for the first-degree murder of Delene Hempel. In the fall of 1994, the case against Barons was presented to a jury. Delene's husband, Troy Hempel, only attended the trial once, the day he had to testify. I just remember I couldn't even look up in, in the courtroom, right? I just said, because he was right there, right? No, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was, what I would do in that situation, right? I wanted to kill him, right? That's what I wanted to do. The star witness, who was at Confetti's restaurant and bar during Delene's second shift, told jurors about the conversations she overheard. He was the only one sitting at the bar, and our star witness was back in the booth, you know, listening to some of this and kind of looking at the facial, you know, and like I say, she turned out to be the you know, star witness, really, because she provided the composites and stuff, so. Undercover officers involved in the Mr. Big Sting operation also testified. But I will say that uh, of, of anybody that I ever um, had to work on in, in my policing career, uh, Stephen Behrens was, was, was the most vile human being that I, I ever encountered. Um, there wasn't a moment that went by that he wasn't saying something absolutely despicable or horrific, offensive. And um, even in terms of the details, 
that he provided to me uh, about what he did uh, with respect to this homicide case, um, I'm still not even comfortable talking about it because it, uh, it, was, it was absolutely terrible. This case was the, very, the one and only time I actually turned to the uh, judge and said, if there's family members in the courtroom, they might want to leave and not hear the details because they're so graphic. Veteran defense lawyer Alan Hepner represented Barnes. There was some holdback evidence that was involved as well, that they always do, police do that with regularity, dealing with some evidence that only the culprit or people close to him or her would know. The evidence was very strong and overwhelming um, in terms of a circumstantial case, but the Mr. Biggin confessions that they pieced together was part of the bigger picture. Hepner presented a rather unique defense to the jury. He was such a liar, and I think I used the term lowlife, I used the term lacking in virtues, that nothing he said could be believed. Like he was just nothing that was reliable in his testimony. So the, the essence of the defense was that there was no smoking gun other than the, um, the 15 scenarios where the police pieced together confessions that he had made. But the jury believed the evidence against Barron's. He was convicted of the first-degree murder of Deline Hempel and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. Why Barron's targeted and killed Deline Hempel never came out in court. But the officers I spoke with always felt it came back to his spurned advances that night at Confetti's bar. In policing, we often say this is not a braggable offense. One could only assume that was, that was a motive, especially given the, the circumstances that are true, that he wouldn't stop hitting on her all night. You may be wondering if Barnes was also at the bar during Deline's first shift. You'll recall she told her husband a patron was giving her a hard time that night as well. Police were never able to answer that question and will never know for sure. Stephen Barnes took a lot of secrets to the grave. 12 years to the day after Deline Hempel's body was found, her killer took his own life. He was found dead inside of Kingston Penitentiary. An inquest was held in front of a jury with the purpose of determining the circumstances surrounding his death. I obtained a summary of the inquest which stated, in the days leading up to Barnes's death, he was housed in a segregation area of the prison at his own request. He was seen by various correctional staff, including the warden and the prison nurse. Witnesses at the inquest testified that several staff specifically asked about mood and intention for self-harm with a negative response. On April 9, 2005, a correctional officer found Barron's hanging in his cell. The jury deliberated for over an hour and returned with a verdict that Barron's died by suicide. No recommendations were made. Both Deline's husband and her sister said the news gave them some closure in a horrific chapter of their lives that would have otherwise been difficult to close. I never wanted to get close to anybody was because 
I knew eventually this guy was eventually going to get out of prison, and what was I going to do then? I didn't know. I really didn't know what I was going to do back then. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know. I didn't know if that was going to happen or not. So him uh, dying in prison, fantastic. Like it's saved. It's it. Yeah, it probably saved me from doing something silly in the in the future, right? So that was uh, huge. Um, it's a big burden lifted off my shoulders. 2022 marked 30 years since Deline's disappearance. Jolene thinks about her sister every day. When I think about what she would be like now, I imagine the same warm person with lots of interests, very social, lots of friends. We kind of condense our grief into what we call Tinker Days. Her birthday, the anniversary of when she went missing, and the anniversary of her murder. June 21st, November 17th, April 9th. Losing Deline changed the course of Troy Hempel's life. You're 22 years old and you have everything taken away from you. After he testified in the trial, he left the city. He said he couldn't bear to hear details of what happened to his wife. And immediately, next day, got in my vehicle and drove to, all the way to Los Angeles, actually. I enrolled in a race car driving school because it was always a dream of mine to, to do that. And, and yeah, I drove down to... Uh, to LA and and did that. I could be with Deline and I could be away. Troy said it was an escape and mentally it was what he needed at the time. And just live day by day. Try to try to live every, you know, just whatever what just deal with whatever happens the next day because because your life is a bag of emotions. Um, and at times, you got bad thoughts going through your brain, right? And you have to control them. You have to, um, when you make a decision, uh, a goal to, to live. And I, and I made the decision to live for my dogs, but also, because I wouldn't want her to do that too, right? That's what I mean. I put my, I reverse, try to put myself in her shoes and her into mine. And I wouldn't want her to, to, to kill herself. Um, I would want her to try to live the best life she possibly could. And so that's, that's what I've always tried to do, is just to, to try to live as, as best I could all the time. When he finally returned to Calgary, he faced some difficult situations. Of course it happened uh, a few times where people would recognize uh, me. Um, and, and it would immediately it would it would put me into a shell right away, um, uh, just because I was so afraid that people who got to know me for who I am would now feel sorry for me or you know judge me differently. Maybe um, so I always kind of tried to suppress that, and I was fearful of finding love again because I, I mean, I if I if, to go through that again. 
to have someone missing, someone you love, someone who's your life, and they're missing and you don't know where they are, that's it's a horrible feeling. And I never wanted to go through that ever again. So I'd always worried, I'd always feared that maybe I was going to be a little too overprotective if I ever found love again. Um, so that scared me. I didn't want to put anybody through that. More than a decade after Deline's death, when he wasn't looking, Troy did find love again. I'm pretty lucky to be able to experience love again um, and uh, build a beautiful family from from this, you know, come out of this tragedy and and to be where I am today is 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 a is a, a win for me. A cross marks the spot where Deline Hempel's vehicle was found. Her memory lives on. Troy Hempel's daughter's middle name is Deline, and her sister's son's name is Dylan. Oh, I always think about her in the good times. Thank you to Troy and Jeline and Deline's mother for trusting me to share her story. If you or someone you know is in crisis and needs help, resources are available. In case of an emergency, please call 911 for immediate help. For a directory of support services in your area, visit the Canadian Association for Suicide Prevention at suicideprevention.ca. If you're in the USA, you can call or text 988 for direct access to a suicide and crisis lifeline. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the VP of Network Content Production and Distribution and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.